Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. A nice candy. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Cooking Show. I'm your host, Bob, and I'm really looking forward to this week's episode. Hopefully it's not too ambitious for what I have in mind, but, uh, you know, let's tell you up front, what we're making this week is a beef stroganoff. And of course, you know, you look at the show notes, you'll have the recipe that I'm using, the photo log of the step-by-step. -step. Uh, I don't foresee having special ingredients or special equipment on this one. But, but the reason I'm looking forward to this episode is that, you know, on this podcast, a lot of times we're looking at traditional, authentic preparations of, of dishes, like trying to recreate the, the real, like the feel of the dish as opposed to just, you know, a list of ingredients. And with beef stroganoff, there's a, an interesting situation afoot where the quote-unquote authentic version of the dish, as it would have been, you know, around its inception, around the time in which the dish actually went by the name of stroganoff, would be almost unrecognizable to the modern diner because of things that happened intermediate through the, through the timeline from inception to the present day. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about when you are trying to evoke a certain feeling or an ambiance with a with a meal, with an ingredient or something like that, how closely to the origin story do you need to really stick when it comes to, you know, trying to recreate something that you're 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 presenting as authentic. Now, I'll give you sort of an example of what I'm talking about here. So beef stroganoff, uh, there's a couple origin myths surrounding it. Uh, one is that there was a Russian count in the mid-18th century named Pavel uh, Stroganoff, and he had a French chef, you know, as his personal chef, who developed the dish. And, you know, whenever somebody develops a dish for, for a country, I said, like, this is... This is the flagship dish for our culture or our civilization or whatever. You know, when it doesn't necessarily come about organically, uh, a lot of times there there are cues that are being mm, transmitted along with <laughs> along with the dish itself. You know, why why we're choosing certain ingredients or certain cuts of meat or you know whatever because we're saying more about the origin of the dish than just the dish itself, right? So beef stroganoff is sort of one of those dishes that it was it was created not just for this one individual's dining pleasure, but as sort of an export of the Russian Empire. You know, this would have been pre-USSR because this would have been the mid-19th century, you know, the 18, you know, 1860s, 1870s. And the dish itself is going to go through a number of changes over time as it gets disseminated around the world. You know, whenever you're you're trying to create something that that carries with it all of the the gravitas of the original dish, you don't want to lose that by going too authentic in bringing forth something that nobody recognizes as the dish that you're presenting it as. Okay, so what we're going to look at is is what the original dish was, uh, you know, whatever variations. Um, how it kind of standardized into the dish that we know it as today. And then we'll go through the, the ingredients that I've chosen 
to to blend what would you say blend the perception you know like so that you have something that's recognizable to a modern diner but then also brings with it you know the evocative nature of certain ingredients or mouthfeel or you know flavors or whatever to try to communicate what this dish would have communicated back then <laughs> so a little bit convoluted but maybe you'll maybe you'll see what I'm talking about here so first of all uh, the initial you know, initial original uh, recipe for stroganoff was essentially a modified beef stew that is heavily seasoned with or seasoned flavored. The flavor is informed by mustard, sour cream, and then very shortly after its inception, tomato paste, which this this is where it kind of goes off the rails. It's like if you would make a, a quote unquote authentic stroganoff per you know, a recipe from like 1871 or something like that. The resulting dish is going to have uh, a tomato component. The appearance of it is going to be different. It's going to have, you know, the, like a creamy red color. You may have, you may deglaze the pan with vodka or white wine. Makes perfect sense whenever you have a tomato component in a vodka centric society like Russia, alcohol will bring forth flavor compounds and volatile flavor compounds on the palate that will taste different than if you omitted the alcohol. You know, pasta with vodka sauce is a classic, you know, preparation for that reason. However, once the dish kind of got out into the world, the British pubs would serve this as, you know, traditional Russian bar food or whatever. And uh, they would pretty much omit the tomato component for that while making the quote unquote cream sauce as a creamy white wine sauce. So building up reduced white wine with flour and butter and cream and sour cream and all those things. But basically that white wine uh, took the place, the acidity of white wine would take the place of the of the tomato component and then you know eventually the dish goes across the atlantic and comes to america right as our like industrial food system has taken off and starts to produce convenience foods and lots of dehydrated you know rehydratable sauces and uh you know, your box dinners with the flavor packet and the dry pasta or the rice or whatever. This is where, you know, stroganoff kind of hits its, uh, what would you say? We would say like it, it hits a groove, it hits a stride, and it pretty much just doubles down on the basic components where it's it's beef, it's sour cream. At this point, the mustard uh, seems to be missing in action from the, from the 1950s, 1960s recipes. You know, essentially it is beef stew with a sour cream addition, okay? When we want to create this dish, certainly we want to appeal to that, you know, sensibility in terms of flavor or expectations of flavor. So we're going to be focusing on, you know, the, the classic sour cream preparation, but we're going to, we're going to make some deliberate choices to get more of a, a, a comfort food, old world rustic sort of feel to it because, because you think... The guy, the the French chef, the personal chef of uh, Pavel uh, Stroganoff, he was you know creating this dish for the aristocracy. So you know price wasn't really a big concern, you know, for ingredients and stuff like that. So you know the original recipes would call for 
beef tenderloin or well we would call it strip loin but you know with european sensibilities they would call it sirloin but sirloin would be referring to in america what is the strip loin so higher quality cuts of beef and like i said the the tomato paste or a tomato sauce uh, maybe maybe an alcohol component maybe not later as it's as this dish sort of moved across europe you would have the uh, addition of things like onions and mushrooms, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's essentially a stew. But remember, you know, onions are a fairly new development in the Stroganoff story. So, you know, uh, mushrooms pretty much is a staple from the English pub era through to the box dinner era, you know, in America. But the original dish wouldn't have had onions or mushrooms necessarily. Okay. One little tangent that I want to go on <laughs> because, because this is right in my wheelhouse is, you know, anytime you get a chance to bring up Jeffrey Chaucer in a cooking podcast, you got to take that chance because when's the next time you're going to have the chance, right? <laughs> uh, one of, one of Chaucer's, what would you call it? Like a lesser known work. You know, everybody's familiar with the Canterbury Tales and a lot of people are familiar with the Parliament of Fowls and the House of Fame and the the Book of the Duchess and all this kind of stuff. But uh, one of those uh, sleepers in there is is Boes. Boes is a translation, a retelling of the Consolation of Philosophy by a Roman monk, Boethius, who was martyred, executed. <laughs> and I believe it was 524 AD, somewhere around there. Chaucer writes a translation of Boethius's work, and it's entitled, as, as Chaucer's work, it's, it's entitled Boes. And in the, how would you call it, like the prologue or the introduction, I haven't read this for many, many years, but this one part did stand out to me, is that he's explaining this, this process that he's going through of translating this work, and he's careful to note that he's not translating it word for word. It's not like we're looking at this, you know, what is this word? What was it in Latin? What is it in English? You know, it's not a one for one translation. He says he's translating uh, not in the hearing, but in the seeming, right? And what this has taken to mean is that he has fully consumed the story, Consolation of Philosophy, and he's digested it and he's made it. You know, a, a story that he knows so well that he, it, it is within him and he can retell the story in the vernacular English of the 14th century. And while it won't be a word for word translation, he will translate the feeling that Boethius was trying to convey in his manuscript. So it just it seemed like it was uh, kind of poetic. It was it was poetically concise. You know, this this passage, and I can't, I'm not going to reread the whole thing to find it and cite, you know, chapter and verse for it, but that he's translating not in the hearing, but of the seeming. It really, you know, a lot of, a lot of passages by Chaucer, you, it might be a handful of words, but whenever you really drill down into, into the, the deliberation that went into the, the selectivity of what specific words are we using and how are we saying it? And you can extrapolate this whole this whole body of, uh, of literary tradition and r- religious tradition and social situations that would have been uh, part and parcel of the 14th century when Chaucer lived. Uh, but anyway, that whole thing about uh, translating this in the seeming, 
that's essentially what we're doing when we are making a dish that is anchored in a specific time and with specific people. It's like, obviously, the the quote-unquote legit original recipe for beef stroganoff would be almost unrecognizable today. So if you're going to make stroganoff, do you want it do you want it to be an enigma? Like, oh, wow, I, I thought I knew stroganoff and it, I, I had no idea. Do you want that to be the focus of the, of the experience of eating it? Or do you want the focus to be, wow, this is really good. Like this is, I know what stroganoff is and this is a really good example of it. Plus there's like extra layers of flavor and depth that feels, it feels certainly higher quality than hamburger helper stroganoff i would hope so i mean using whole ingredients and you know cooking something over the course of an afternoon certainly should be a little bit more complex on the palate than rehydrated flavor dust in a cardboard box right so that's what we're doing we're going to go through uh ingredient by ingredient what we uh what we made and why we made the selections that we did okay and obviously you you look at the show notes you'll see the measurements for all the ingredients well, well this is sort of like just like the the bird's eye overview. All right, first off, we are going to be using uh, kind of bottom of the barrel cuts of beef here. We're using beef eye of round steaks, the cheapest thing that I could find. That is a deliberate choice. As I said earlier, when this dish was conceived of, it was conceived of for somebody of means, of a higher social station. You know, it was, it was for a count by a personal French chef and they were using tenderloin and strip loin, you know, high quality cuts of beef, things that would be tender and delicious by themselves without a lot of um, additional inputs. However, if we think about what the dish was supposed to convey to the outside world, you know, as this is exported as a, you know, an, an instance of Russian culture of the time, it's pretty clear that you know, there's a reason why they've chosen a very heavy, cream-laden uh, stew, essentially, as opposed to, you know, lighter fare. Russia has this reputation for being a hard land to live in that breeds hard people and, you know, cold climate and, and very difficult to to make your way through life in the motherland of Russia, right? So so the fact that this is a stew, we can, we can suppose that they were just sort of elevating. They were like, hey, if we're going to make beef stew, why don't we use the best cuts of beef? You know, we're not, we're not peasants out in the village making this. We're living in the castle or the, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever opulent residence this person would have been at. So uh, we can infer that if this is hearkening back to comfort food of the, of the people, that the people would have been using cheaper cuts of beef. So we're going to use the cheapest, like most flavorless cut of beef possible because you got to use it sometime and why not use it in something with lots of wonderful flavor here so we're using those eye of round steaks as opposed to tenderloin or strip loin okay the second we're going to be using beef stock beef broth basically if i were using higher quality cuts of beef i would use in place of beef broth beef consomme 
which is a further, you know, additionally reduced and concentrated essence of beef, you know, the the the, the purified liquefaction of or liquefaction of the entire bovine. There is an episode of Northern Exposure. This is the only episode of that show that I've ever actually watched in its entirety. And it was many, many years ago. I don't remember what the plot was, except that there was a chef in this Alaskan town preparing some big fancy dinner. And he was basically boiling down beef stock, beef bone broth into consomme. And he was he was bragging that when he's done, he'll have one cup of this liquid that will be like the the barest expression of beef because it will have the full essence of the animal distilled down in this cup well that's that's cool if you don't have to cook the beef very long beef consomme will get you there it'll have a very deep rich flavor sort of a velvety mouthfeel it'll be very good um but we're using uh low quality beef so we're gonna we're we need to cook that for a long time we need to kind of get that that fork tender, you know, fall apart mouthfeel that you expect from essentially a beef stew. So we can go with the beef broth for additional uh, moisture content because that's going to boil down and cook off a lot of the water. We're going to thicken this sauce with all kinds of, you know, other processes and slow cooking or whatever. So that's why we're choosing the beef broth for the extended cooking period uh, with the uh, lower quality beef in there. Okay. A little bit of flour. We're going to cube up that beef. We're going to dredge it in flour. And that's how we're going to start building the flavors and textures in the pan. So we need a little bit of flour there. We are going to use dry mustard powder. This will very likely be absent from quote unquote modern stroganoff recipes. Maybe they'll throw it in there as an homage to the original. I don't know, but that's, it seems like that, that flavor component is, let's see, it's, it's important enough that early recipes would say like um, beef a la stroganoff with mustard. Like it was like it was a it was a, an ingredient that they would highlight and say this is like this beef stew a cream sauce with mustard. <laughs> so we're going to have it with mustard, dry mustard powder. OK, we're going to use a couple cloves of garlic. And we're going to use some white button mushrooms. We're going to use a real simple mushroom. Now, the mushroom is an addition, certainly later in the, the history of stroganoff, probably in the British pub scene, certainly in the American, you know, box TV dinner type of uh, milieu for this, for this dish. But, you know, mushrooms, foraging and drying mushrooms, all that kind of stuff in Eastern Europe and in Russia is is big. It's a big part of the culinary and 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 social tradition and history. You know, these isolated villages you know, would have access to forests, and you would go out and forage for mushrooms. And pretty much everybody would know what mushrooms were good, what mushrooms were bad. You know, the the myth of Saint Nicholas of and Santa Claus was that of a shaman that would come through in the winter and drop you know fly agaric mushrooms down through the the chimney. So that, you know, you could break the monotony of uh, the long, cold, dark Russian winter with a little bit of uh, fun, fun via mycology. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Um, so we'll use some mushrooms here. Now, I think, I mean, ideally, if I had thought about this, this particular point earlier, uh, I may have used dried mushrooms that would have that would have changed 
a little bit of the flavor and texture because we could use something, man, I probably wouldn't use shiitakes, but like dried oyster mushrooms or, or dried porcinis or something like that would have been really good. And then when you rehydrate them, you have the, the opportunity to add another layer of flavor there. Like you can rehydrate them in beef stock or red wine or you know what whatever else chicken chicken stock with vodka you know whatever but we're using fresh mushrooms for this at least just to pull in the the woodsy earthy you know kind of rustic texture and flavor into the dish we're, we're going to use a little bit of heavy whipping cream in addition to our sour cream and the reason for this is that we're trying to really double down on the comfort food aspect of this, like to have a really rich and creamy, smooth sauce. So the addition of the heavy whipping cream will add to that sort of the, the, the thick, the heavy comforting aspect of, of the dish. The sour cream, you know, think about again, like what is being conveyed via the, the ingredient choices here. You know, using beef, you know, Russians certainly would have access to beef and those in, in the forests of Eastern Europe. I mean, it was in, I think it was in a Polish forest in uh, 1865 that the last known wild auroch died. And the auroch would be like basically the European precursor to modern domesticated cattle. Uh, so, you know, not saying that they would have been making this dish out of auroch, but they would have lived in a place where, uh, cattle farming would have been fairly widespread and accessible, but this would specifically be like a wintertime dish they would be making. So if you think about it, you know, the beef, uh, you might have some beef available, you know, whether it was frozen or you slaughtered a, a, a cow or a steer or something like that during the wintertime months. But things like mushrooms certainly can be dried and preserved and, and held over from one season to the next. Beef stock or consomme, depending on which one you want to use, is essentially a preservation of beef. You know, if you if you harvest an animal in the in the fall or early winter, um, a lot of those bones can be roasted and and simmered down to make. Uh, a bone broth or something like that, which then can be stored in earthenware crocks or glass jars or something like that. If you have a root cellar, or if you have outdoor cold storage, you can you can certainly store um, beef broth in less space and for a longer period of time than whole cuts of beef or beef bones or whatever. So again, this is kind of feeding back into the, we are making this dish out of things in the pantry or in the larder or in the root cellar or making use of, of ingredients that are as fresh as they can get in the middle of the Russian winter, right? I mean, the dry mustard powder, the fact that you're using that, that is something that is shelf stable for a long period of time. And then finally, uh, the secret ingredient, the secret uh, flavor component is dried dill weed, okay? Now, if you think about, if you think about Russian cooking, dill is such a, it's such a polarizing flavor. We so closely associate it with dill pickles now that you you get a little taste of dill or smell of dill and it's like your brain fills in the the acidic portion of the flavor palette there but dill is uh it is a a a viable spice or herb 
on its own and uh, it dries easily, it stores well. So using dry dill to add like this this little background uh, component to the flavor, a little something that comes out of left field where in the finished dish, it's not overpowering. You can certainly isolate it with if you if you're you know aware enough of, of flavors that you can tease out. You can tease out the 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 dill undertones, but it uh, you know it just adds a, a hint of mm, you know pick, pickling or pick, pickled flavors are flavors of preservation of you know making things last from one season to the next so just having that hint of flavor that's reminiscent of pickled items even though nothing in this dish is actually pickled itself it works fantastically okay so uh yeah let's get to the basic preparation here it's really simple it's just a matter you know if the lower quality of beef that you use the longer you want to you know cook and simmer and sort of braise this i mean that's not really a braise it's on the stovetop but first up, we cube our eye of round, roughly one inch cubes, get those into a bowl and toss them with the flour that you have there in the cooking vessel. Now, this would have been pretty much uh, par for the course to use the enamel cast iron uh, Dutch oven. But I wanted to make something different. I wanted to use a different cooking vessel because I have so many, so many recent recipes using the Dutch oven that uh, I don't want it to get uh, monotonous or repetitive. So I used a big saute pan, which actually works great for a dish like this because we want to reduce and concentrate the sauce over time. So with the saute pan, you can cover it for a long you know, simmer, but then when you uncover it and you want to crank that heat up and you want to boil off some, some water and, and reduce the, th the sauce and thicken it up, Having a big wide saute, I think it's like a 14 inch saute pan or something like that, that gives you a lot of surface area on the top for water to escape as water vapor. So that is uh, great. Anything anything that you want to cook down and thicken up as just a, as, as a function of removing water content, you know, having a, a wider, shallower cooking vessel works great for that. Okay, so what, what do we do here? We, we cube up our, our beef, we toss in the flour, and then in our saute pan with a bunch of olive oil, get that in there, and you just basically want to get a, a golden brown sort of a, a if, if it were a roux, you'd be looking for like a dark blonde roux color, but we're not making a roux here. We're just searing the beef and getting a little bit of a crust on the outside there. And we're going for like a dark blonde sort of golden brown color. And then once once that has happened, <laughs> once you have seared uh, and you've tossed around all this beef and everything is nice and crispy and delicious looking, then we are going to add our beef broth to the pan. And with a wooden spoon, we're going to scrape the bottom, okay? Because you're going to have all kinds of fond uh, created on the bottom of the pan. And now as that beef broth comes up to a simmer, up to a boil, it's going to release a lot of that fond and you can scrape it around and incorporate it into the, into the liquid that you're going to cook this beef in and uh, it will clean your pan. It'll create a lot of wonderful flavor and it'll be awesome. So <laughs> to, to your pan at this point, once this has come up to a little bit of a simmer and you've got like a little bit of a foamy white bubbles forming you can add all of your dry mustard powder and your dry dill weed 
and mix that around so it's incorporated and then just let that simmer let that let that bubble a little bit uncovered for you know 15 minutes or so just to sort of get a good start on where we're going uh, you can use that time to crush and peel two or three heads of garlic chop those up and then throw them into the pan with the meat and broth and spices and then we're going to cover that pan and we're going to let it simmer on the lowest setting that can maintain a just a trickle of bubbles we're going to simmer that for two hours and the reason we're going to do it for two hours is because we are using that cheap beef if we were making this with tenderloin or if we were making this with strip loin we would probably just leave it uncovered blast the heat and reduce it until uh, you know, w w until you've reduced it by a third, then we'd continue building up on it at that point. But we're going to let this go for two hours. That's going to make that beef super tender. It is going to ensure that everything is really fully married as far as the, uh, the, the components of the sauce at this point. You know, the, it is going to extract a lot of that mustard flavor. Oh, also salt and black pepper. I'm not, I don't have it listed in the ingredients, but salt and black pepper to taste. Um, you'll probably want to add, you know, at least a, 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 a teaspoon to two teaspoons of kosher salt, a couple generous grinds of black pepper and uh and then let that beef simmer for like i said two hours at the point where you come back and you want you're ready to finish this off and serve it what we're going to do is we're going to uncover this we're going to chop all of those uh mushrooms and then add the mushrooms to the cooking liquid and the beef maybe return the lid on that for you know, 10 or 15 minutes those mushrooms are going to soften up very quickly. They're going to absorb some of that liquid, and then they'll probably express some of their own water. So it's going to change the viscosity of your sauce, depending on where you started off with, how much how much water content was in your beef, how tight the seal was on your pan with the lid, like how much steam escaped during the two-hour cooking process. I don't know. You're going to have to judge the, the texture of your sauce at each step to see, okay, do I need to simmer this uncovered for a little while, or do I leave it covered and let everything kind of soften up and cook down, whatever. But once, you know, 15, 20 minutes have gone by and your mushrooms are soft, but still shapely, you know, you can still tell that they're mushrooms and everything. We can uncover the pan and kill the heat and let that, you know, relax a little bit stir it around the wooden spoon you'll you'll get a lot of steam being released as you agitate the surface but at that point you know once you don't have any active movement you know it's not simmering it's not boiling and it's just basically steaming away there you can add your heavy cream and your sour cream now some people some people say that you should temper your sour cream and so that it it stays uh, evenly incorporated and you don't get little globules of fat. You know, basically you don't break the emulsion. I find that if if you're not adding it to like an actively boiling sauce, that uh, you can add it in there and very gently and deliberately incorporate it. It's almost like folding it if you were making a baked good, but you're not, not really folding it. You're just very small. Um, small stirring motions with the wooden spoon will allow that sour cream to melt into the broth and uh, become fully incorporated um, with the sauce there. 
and I haven't really had much of a problem with it. So I, I didn't temper the sour cream. I didn't temper the heavy cream, but I did put the heavy cream in first, put the sour cream in second, and then just slowly and deliberately uh, stir that in so that it gets fully incorporated. At this point, you'll want to taste the sauce and see like how much more salt do I need? How much more pepper? Salt and pepper is really going to be the only thing that you need to add here. And at that point, uh, you can either turn that onto low or simmer just to keep it warm or it can stay hot i mean it's going to stay hot for a, a number of minutes so you can get your water boiling for your egg noodles or you know sometimes it's served with rice i've seen recipes saying to serve it with mashed potatoes the 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 original accoutrement for the dish would have been uh crispy fried potato straws that's how i've seen them described Sounds to me like French fries. You know, you have something here with this cream sauce and the beef. It's uh, it's going to be rich and flavorful and then served on top of what are essentially French fries. It sounds like you're getting close to like a Russian take on poutine, you know, with the brown gravy and cheese curd and French fries that you get, you know, in Canada compared to what is essentially a, a creamy beef stew served atop french fries in you know the middle of the 1800s in russia i felt like man, serving this on french fries was a bridge too far so i went with the classic no yolks egg noodles <laughs> because again this is what are we hearkening back to uh, essentially that is saying yes you remember this as the hamburger helper right which with the egg noodles or the wavy noodles or whatever they had in there Certainly, uh, you know, you can use the egg noodles as a, as a throwback to the mid-century American take on the mid-previous century Russian dish of beef stroganoff. And I'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the oft-forgotten Disney animated film Anastasia has a musical number where the the princess who, uh, well, she doesn't know that she's the actual princess, but she's part of this uh, scam to convince the Russian royal family that she is the Princess Anastasia. It's a whole thing. I'm not going to get into the spoilers of a, at this point, 25, 26-year-old Disney movie. But in one of the musical numbers, she says, you know, I don't care much for Stroganoff. And one of her... Uh, one of the guys singing with her says, ah, spoken like a Romanoff. And I just thought that was a perfect rhyme scheme. You know, Stroganoff, Romanoff. It's the only part of that movie I remember, aside from the the, the peppermint perfume on the carpet. <laughs> I might have to watch that with the kids this week. All right, so that, my friends, is Beef Stroganoff. And it's, uh, I think it's, it's an interesting take on it. Because, you know, rather than going all the way back and be like, okay, 1871, this is how this was produced. We're going to get beef tenderloin. We're going to get tomato paste uh we're gonna do this that and the other thing and we're gonna serve it with french fries and be like man kind of have to have a disclaimer be like yeah this is stroganoff no really it is it's just you not like you know <laughs> so what we do is we follow the we we follow the family tree for the dish and we see a point where the flavor profile where people kind of coalesced around a, a canonical list of what this dish has to have a beef beef broth sour cream right some kind of a, a starchy thing to to hold it at the end and then we build up from there so it's like we're it's like we're trying to recreate the hamburger helper version of a dish while churching it up enough so that it tastes 
it tastes a little bit more old world. And tell you what, the dill, dill really pulls that, pull, pulls double duty in this dish. The dill is fantastic. It, it it creates a really nice farmhouse flavor, you know. And there's a lot of these things. I, I you say what they mean to you, and then you just hope that you're you're living in a shared reality with the people who are listening to you. <laughs> because whenever I say that dill tastes like like farmhouse cooking, you'd be like, dude, you you've gone off the deep end. I don't know what you're talking about. But anyway, uh, yeah, this is. Um, an, another great comfort food for the middle of winter. You know, it's uh, it's beef stew with the added uh, robustness of sour cream and dill and dry mustard and and cream. Oh, it's delicious. Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, it makes you want to take a nap. <laughs> so check out the show notes for the recipe that I used. Look at all the pretty pitches uh, from this afternoon of putting things together and uh, make yourself some make yourself some Russian comfort food. We love it. You'll love to see it. <laughs> and we'll talk to you guys next week.